Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Hi, Duane. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're talking sea turtles with you. Um, everyone loves sea turtles and lots of people are aware of the populations of sea turtles in places like the Great Barrier Reef, but your focus is much closer to some of our temperate waters in New South Wales and subtropical regions, uh, which people might not know. We we have turtles around here. So can you tell me how big is the sea turtle population in some of these temperate places? Yeah, 100%, Trace. I think when people think sea turtles, they think the tropics, and they think Queensland. Um, but I'm in Kofsabi here, which is mid-north coast of New South Wales, and I do a lot of surfing, a lot of diving, and I see a lot of turtles. Um, and with the rescue and rehab work that we do here at the hospital, um, yeah, we'd get we'd get 40 or 50 a year that wash up on the beach and, and need care. So there's a bunch. There's a bunch down here. They're all, um, you know, they're all juvenile to sub-adult animals, predominantly, at least, anyway. So we don't get those, the big breeding animals that you get up in Queensland, Um Saying that, actually, we're getting more and more of those females coming down to nest. That's super interesting. Like, how far along the coast can people expect to see that they might come, you know, face to face with a turtle? Well, I think when you're when you're out snorkeling and you've got, let, let me back up. I'll back up two secs. So, yeah. what happens with sea turtles? The and this this should hopefully put it in context a little bit. So, the the female will come in and she'll lay her eggs on the beach, um, and then depending on the temperature of the sand, it'll take between two and three months. Uh, and that sand temperature will actually determine the, the sex of the offspring as well. So after that period, the, the little dudes, uh, they emerge and they just, they, they hit this, hit the water in a period called the swim frenzy and they just take off. They go out through the nearshore environment and they hit pelagic currents and they drift around for, you know, five or 10 years out there. And then after that, that's called the lost years because no one knows a lot about them. Uh, and then it, when they're about 35, 40 centimetres long, they get recruited back into the to the near shore environment. So when you're snorkelling, predominantly around here, they're the ones we see. So we see those teenagers that have been kind of recruited back into to this environment. Um, and then they'll tend to hang here for, they've got a high level of site fidelity at, at that age. They hang around in one spot until then they migrate up to, to breed and, and nest. So in terms, to answer your question, yeah. getting back to the question, uh, we see the little ones down here and you'll see them as far south. I mean, we get them from Tari, Foster, Newcastle. They get a lot of them down in Port Stephens, um, those little fellas down there. Uh, the bigger animals we don't have a lot of uh, normally down here, but we do see them coming down here to, to nest. Wow. Uh, so you're saying that there's teenage turtles with a local break that they're hanging out at. <laughs> They're, that's it. They're the locals. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That lost years is really interesting. We really don't know anything about what's happening to them between when they first hatch and before they come back to their local site. Yeah, they're, they're getting better now with kind of uh, piecing it together using stuff like isotopes and that sort of stuff that wasn't around back in the 70s when that term was coined. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, still not a lot, you know. Um, they just And different critters do different things, you know. So the green sea turtles will kind of, They'll duck off off the coast of New South Wales or Queensland, wherever they've hatched, uh, hit the East Australian current, very much like yeah. out of Nemo, yeah, and, nice. and cruise down. But then they'll generally kick up on the inside of New Zealand and they, they find these big sargassum beds out there, just floating debris, and just and just drift around and snack on stuff that lives in and around those sargassum Seriously, beds. Seriously, that's a long way. 
Well, no, this it gets better. Yeah, so the loggerheads, they'll actually um, duck down the bottom of New Zealand and get spat out over South America and then loop back up the coast, yeah. That's massive swims. Massive swim. You know, you're talking about like a little four-centimetre turtle, uh, you know, cruising out through big seas, hitting a current, drifting down south and then doing the big loop. Big swim back. That that is that's really massive. I had no idea that they were going that far. And then, did you say they come back to general area where they hatch from? Yeah. So the the critters at that age, when they get recruited back into that nearshore environment, I don't know whether or not that's where they hatched from. Um, I know that they do return when they're nesting. They return back to the beaches where they where they hatched from, give yep. or take. But in those teenage years, I think they're just hitting the coast and they're just getting their bearings. So they're just cruising around trying to find a good spot to eat that's a bit sheltered. And and I think that's why with those with those little critters or the teenage critters, once they do find a spot that's suitable, they tend to hang there for a bit. Wow, that's amazing. How long will they then stay at that local beach? Well, if sexual maturity in these guys is around, uh, say, 90 centimetres, 95 centimetres in length, they're about 30 years of age, then they can hang in that area for, you know, 10 or 15 years. Wow, that's a that's amazing. That's a really long time to be sitting in that one little local area. So people who are, you know, like you say, going out and snorkeling off a headland or around an inlet and seeing turtles regularly, they're probably seeing those same turtles through their childhood or, you know, ones that were there as they were growing up or also growing up. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to, to qualify a little bit, but they kind of they, they hang in the one spot, but they may not hang in that one area then until you know until they're ready to breed and then they bail. Uh, but they do tend to hang in the one area for uh, for a good chunk of time, which is really interesting with these guys because it makes them really good uh, sentinels. But in terms of looking at ecosystem health, you know, these guys are hanging in the one spot. They're really good. They're really good indicators. Yeah, that's really interesting because your background is actually um, veterinary science, so you really have that lens of um, of veterinary care and animal health that you see the marine environment through. So, in terms of sea turtles um, staying in a place, and you mentioned sentinels, can we use the health of sea turtles as an indication for how healthy our marine neighbourhoods are, our, our local places are? Yeah, I, that was the whole point of of the PhD was to try and do that, and I've failed miserably. So we haven't got any <laughs> we haven't got any really good uh, biomarkers. We haven't got any really good links between uh, kind of environmental contaminants and and causes of ill health. The problem with these guys, like I mentioned before, we might get forty or fifty in a year. Yeah. But with with reptiles, they do everything slow, so they get sick slow. They get better slow. So it means the critters that we're getting in. They could have been sick for a month, you know. You know the ocean, Trace. You know yep. it's massive. A lot can happen in a month. You know you yeah. can drift a couple of hundred k's from where you go crook, or yeah. Um, so we're looking. We've had some positive results looking at nitrates and, and metals, but it's there are so many variables out there that it's hard to get a kind of a clear cause and effect health compromise. Yeah. Yeah, that, then you're, you're right. That's a real problem with understanding what's happening in marine ecosystems because for so many places, like I work in corals, I mean, we know there's a problem when they're dead and that's a that's an issue because once things are dying, then recovery and repair is so much longer than if we can get in and work out a problem before the animals start dying and fix the cause of the problem rather than waiting for populations to come back. So do you think this is an area of research that needs a lot more um, a lot more help for sea turtles is to work out what's really happening with them before they're stranding? 
Hundred percent. So even though I'm wrapping, I'm, I'm at the end of my PhD, but I feel like I'm just at the beginning of a whole new kind of really cool area. So we've been using uh, metabolomics with the guys up at Griffith Uni, and in terms of sensitivity and giving you a better look at the general health and the physiology of that animal, so much more sensitive than our traditional biomarkers. You know, otherwise we might get like a a blood count and we can see that there's a you know a higher level of white blood cells which might indicate infection or inflammation, but you're like it's a, it's a snapshot, whereas yeah. the metabolomics and stuff give you give you the context, I guess, and so that's really cool. That's an area that we're we're just getting into at the moment. Oh, nice. So met, the um, metabolomics that's really looking at like a whole suite of markers at the same time. Um, is that from blood samples? Yeah, correct. So we've we've done both. We do tissue, uh, blood. Uh, but yeah, I don't really understand the method. It's some fancy nuclear resonant thing about bouncing molecules and stuff. But yeah, and it's non-destructive, so they can they can repeat the analysis on samples multiple times, and it gives mm-hmm. you. It might spit out, I don't know, a thousand uh, metabolites, and then we just pick the the ones that have got the the biggest kind of spike, um, and then we'll try and work out what it means. You know? Yeah, so, that's um, that's fantastic. I mean, I guess people hear a lot about dolphin strandings and things like that and don't pretty know so much about sea turtle strandings. Your your research has done a lot of post-mortem work and looking at what's causing these sea turtles to die along our coast. Have you got any insights into some of the biggest issues that are causing problems? So once again, failed dismally on that. <laughs> so we're actually, one of the papers we're doing at the moment is looking at all the, the critters that have come through the hospital over the last 10 years in the post-mortems. How, um, how many have you had come through your hospital? We've had about 480 come through wow. in the last 10 years um, and about 200 of them we've done the post-mortems on. Yep. We consistently see the same thing, which is these animals, they've got very kind of pale, watery muscles. They don't have a lot of fat. So green sea turtles are called green sea turtles because they eat grass and the chlorophyll yep. in the grass stains the fat. But what happens when you don't have a lot of fat and the, that concentration of the pigment stays, you get really black, watery fat. So black, watery fat and pale, watery muscles means that the animal's breaking down their own body reserves to feed themselves. So that's, that's what we see. It's a condition called cachexia. But uh, interestingly, these critters will often have a gut full of food. Really? Yeah. So the gut's inflamed. There's, we see gastritis, gastroenteritis all the time. Yeah. Uh, we, we see this cachexia. So the animal's in like a negative caloric state with a gut full of food that, you know, and parasitism. So just all non-specific chronic disease indicators, you know. Wow, that, that's really interesting. So they're eating but they're still starving. Well, they're, they've. I think what happens is they've, they've eaten yeah. and then something knocks them around. So they either... I mentioned nitrate before. One of the one one of the theories we we're looking at was when you get a whole lot of nitrogen runoff into the marine environment, the the seagrasses and the macroalgae are sequestered away in a amino acid called arginine. Yeah. And if you're a cow, like if you're a farmer and you overfertilize your your pasture, your your cattle can get nitrate and nitrite poisoning. So we're like, wait a second, okay, we've got coastal eutrophication, we've got nitrogen, we've got gastritis, and we tried to make it all fit, and it didn't work really. <laughs> So, so that was one thing we're looking at, but I think, I think they've, they've eaten and something knocks the gut around and shuts it down and they're not assimilating those calories that are sitting in the gut. So they start breaking down fat and muscle. Wow. That, um, that certainly does give some interesting indications about that connection between land and sea for some of the organisms and animals that, you know, are really iconic for our coasts. Um, 
You you run a citizen science program, Save Our Sea Turtles, um, looking at rehabilitation of stranded sea turtles and, and doing these post-mortems. If people come across these diseased sea turtles on the coast, what, what should they do? Uh, call National Parks yep. um, or call us or Google us. So I, I run the, the charity up here that does the rescue and research stuff, which is called Dolphin Marine Rescue. Um, yeah, so we work closely with National Parks. So either call National Parks or call us or call Orca or call a yep. care group. Uh, and then if it's in our area, they'll work out a way to get that critter into here. The Citizen Scientist Project is a, is a cool one that was all about kind of trying to build capacity. Yeah. Um, so we're always running around picking up sea turtles and uh, and trying to talk to the public about it. So we thought, listen, why not run some training programs, uh, get people uh, registered as volunteers, and then one, I mean, they can run around and do the yeah. sea turtle rescues and it frees me up a bit. Uh, but two... They just, people get into it, you know, you give them a bit of information and a bit of context and they lap it up and, and then they become kind of great ambassadors for, for the turtles. Yeah, well, people are often really surprised as what's actually living in the marine environments that they're like surfing in or walking near or hanging next to and they, they just don't really know that these animals are out there and that they can actually be involved in helping them when they're sick. So that, that's awesome that they can get involved in these citizen science programs and really contribute to, to saving them. Um, in terms of postmortems on turtles, how, what yes. happens? It's, it's gruesome, so, but it's interesting. <laughs> it, is, it is gruesome. And you know who are the best, the, the best people to get involved are the kids. Yeah. So we, we run a little group called EcoGroms. Uh, and kids that are interested, you know, they get a T-shirt. And then if we're going to do a turtle release, then they'll come in and they'll help us assess the turtle and be good to go. Uh, but then if we're going to do a post-mortem, they'll often come in as well. So adults, like my boss here thinks it's gross. He thinks post-mortems are gross and all <laughs> things disgusting. But you get you get a bunch of kids in, you give them some gloves, and they're all by deep in intestines, yeah. you know, before you can before you can blink and then and then we, you know, you get under the microscope and all of a sudden they've got this really engaging kind of experience which is yeah. the post-mortem and then you can link it back to so many different things you know like we can do blood smears and talk about bloods we can we can do a fecal flight so you get the poo kids love yeah. playing with poo yeah so and you can learn a lot from the poo you know so yeah i was gonna say that um that can tell you a lot about what the turtle's been through right like what what's yeah. caused its death what's been exposed to how far it's traveled things like that you can get that kind of information from your post-mortem Oh, 100%. And we often, I mean, everyone likes to see a sea turtle release or, yep. you know, whatever release, but we get more information out of, a, of an animal that dies, you know. Uh, so a fresh carcass is is gold. Um, <laughs> so we can we can look at the gross findings and then we can look at not gross as in yuck, like gross as in things that we can see. Yeah. And then we send tissue off and we have a look at tissue changes and then we can do metabolomic stuff. We can look at uh, nitrogen, phosphorus ratios and the seagrass they've been eating and, you know, heap heap of stuff. Um, yeah, so the postmortems are awesome. We're actually doing a the Australasian Symposium for for sea turtles is coming up in in September, and they've actually rigged up uh, an AV set up there. So we're going to do a bunch of live postmortems, uh, which will be interactive. So people around the world will be able to ask questions, and as we're cutting them up, um, so it should be a great educational tool. And uh, and people will be hopefully able to watch that as well online. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure what the the conveners are going to do with it afterwards, but I, I assume they'll they'll make it available as a link um, because yeah, it, it it could be really cool. Nice. Um, 
So you mentioned Coffs Harbour and um, and where you live. That's the um, Solitary Islands and Solitary Islands Marine Park, which probably people aren't aware that there's uh, such an important marine park just off the coast of northern New South Wales. Um, and you're part of the advisory committee for for that marine park. Can you tell us a bit about how important that marine park is in general but also to the sea turtles? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, I, I dive around here quite a bit, so you take it for granted. But when you when you put the when you start looking at the actual biodiversity in the Solitary Island Marine Park, it it is just crazy. You know, you can be you can jump off a headland uh, and see nudibranchs and plate corals and a sea turtle and uh, yeah, I mean it, it's crazy. And we get this we get the mixing of the tropical and temperate currents. Um, so yeah, it is. It's a fantastic fantastic area to, to live in and to dive in, and that's. You know, you mentioned before I'm a vet, so I kind of came at this whole thing with a kind of a animal assessment kind of background. Yeah. But the more I dive and the more I'm exposed to the marine environment, that you know, the I get a real buzz out of seeing the connections. You know, like that interconnectivity out there. Nice. It's yeah. uh, it's amazing that there's that diversity and that meeting of, like you mentioned, you've got the tropical currents and the temperate currents meeting together there. So you do have that diversity of corals and invertebrates and also, yeah, your sea turtles and um, some of the other more kind of temperate organisms and kelps and things like that that, um, that you might not expect to see kind of living close together. That must really push the diversity um, of that system up to be something really, really interesting, particularly with all the different kinds of sea turtles that you get there as well. Yeah, I mean, we've got a sea snake in care at the moment, like an elegant sea snake, which is a it's a tropical species and, you know, just got caught up in the current and spat in. Uh, had whale sharks come through here early in the year. No, um, really? Yeah. I had no yeah, idea you yeah. got whale sharks. Yeah, yeah, not, I mean, not often. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, orcas, so you get those tropical species and then you get orcas and, you know, great whites and all those kind of. Wow, that's that's awesome. You're totally living in Nemo. Yeah, yeah. Bruce is out there and Crush and all the, yeah. I don't know how keen I would be to see Bruce though. No, no, um, I haven't come across a white yet when I've been diving and I'm pretty happy uh, that I haven't. (laughs) Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, Hey, you grew up by the ocean, um, coastal town in New South Wales. You know, you were a nipper. You said you're a surfer. You've spent much of your life in the ocean. Um, and you've raised your kids with that same connection to to place and to ocean. Um, is that what has inspired you to take your veterinary science into advocating for the health of marine neighbourhoods? Yeah, hundred percent. I think um, I think I mean one. I've just been super lucky. I mean, to grow up where I did and end up living where I am and working in the field that I'm working in. And and super lucky to be able to expose my kids to it as well. Like we were diving on the weekend and they found their first nest of crayfish, you know. Like oh, nice. um, I mean, they were all too small, they didn't take any whatever, but so so super lucky. But in terms of advocacy, I think the 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 real shame a lot of it a lot of the time is there's a real disconnect between people and that marine environment, you know. Like if you're not out there in a wetsuit diving, um, often there's even even here in Coffs, like there's I mean there's a few educational resources where people can see what's out there, um, but not a lot. And the more you expose them to that, the more you can kind of advocate for the marine environment and educate them um, and show them the the kind of yeah. the complexities and the the interconnectivity out there. 
the better. And one of the cool projects we're doing at the moment uh, is called Sea Country Custodians. So we're working with Indigenous rangers to uh, to give them a bit of the the background on the biology and the like the management, like the health management of marine animals, uh, and then combining it with some traditional owners who have got the kind of the cultural protocols and the the historic significance of those species. And it's such a cool mix, you know, like to be able to talk to these indigenous guys that have been living in this area for the last, you know, three, four generations and get the cultural kind of component yeah. in there melded with melded with the, the biology and the research and that sort of stuff has been a really cool project. Yeah, it's lovely for people to see the the longevity and, um, I mean, even the surprise that like a juvenile sea turtle, you know, is spending its teenage years bouncing around, uh, bouncing around the coast and then to have that idea that or that awareness that um, these communities have been, have been turning over right on our coast you know we're more than just this sandy beach that we've got this incredible diversity in the marine environment and there's populations of people that have been connected to it for generation after generation after generation I think there's a raising of awareness that um, we can have a greater connection to the marine environment by taking the time to look and understand and, and listen to what's been here for so long even though it's new to us right and that's the beauty. It's always there's always something new, you know. And, and there's there's something new one because there's like an infinite, you know, interaction of relationships out there. Um, but it's always new because it's changing as well. Like and and one of the, the the cool things I started doing with the kids a year or so back was keeping like a marine diary, you know. So if we went diving, they'd say, okay, I saw some purple coralline algae with a crayfish next to it. Oh, I saw a jewfish in June, and just trying to get that that. Uh, the context, I guess, you know, like this is when the mullet come in and that's what they're eating and you know, so on and so forth. And yeah, it's cool. Nice. That's a great idea. I mean, that's something that people can do, kids can do when they're down at rocky shores or at the beach, yeah. just themselves keep a record of what they see, where they see it, take photos of it if they can, upload them to some of the citizen science programs and actually be part of um, bringing science into that connection as well. Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's the the mix. Like if you can get uh, kids that are engaged and but they're collecting data in a way that can be used for like legit scientific outcomes. Like that's that's yeah. the package, isn't it? That's that's gold. And then you and then you sprinkle, you know, that kind of cultural protocol uh, and and the respect for those kind of totemic species and stuff in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's magic. Yeah, bang. Nice. That's awesome. What uh, What do you think is the most important thing we have to do now for sea turtles? Like, what's the next step in understanding these um, strandings and making sure that future generations are coming across these teenage turtles and nesting turtles on our coastlines here in New South Wales? I think the big thing at the moment with climate change uh, is feminisation. So... We've got the turtles that we see down here um, are part of the southern Great Barrier Reef stock of, of green sea turtles. But on the east coast, there's also a northern Great Barrier Reef stock of sea turtles. Yeah. yeah. So those ones up there, those turtles are producing predominantly female offspring. Yeah. So uh, nesting success is okay. Um, but that's going to have problems, you know, 20 or 30 years' time when they're trying to find a, a yeah. date, you know. <laughs> uh, but the, the nests that we're getting down here in New South Wales, they're producing predominantly um, male offspring because the nest the core. So as long as we get the the interaction between those those two populations and, and, and they've done the genetics and, and they know that these dudes 
are kind of cruising back up and mixing with the, the female critters. Um, I mean, at the moment, population trends, like Southern Great Barrier Reef population trend for sea turtles is increasing. Yeah. So we're doing something right. Uh, we stopped harvesting. We took away a lot of the kind of anthropogenic threats and stresses yeah. to them. So number one, we need to make sure the boys down here mix with the girls up there. So yeah. that's number one. And number two, we need to get to the bottom of why we're getting sick turtles on the beach, you know. Yeah. Because um, it's not like it's, like if we had 40 or 50 come in each year and they were, you know, shark attack or or even boat strike or line entanglement, we'd have an answer, you yeah. know. But we're getting these, we're getting disease and we're getting disease where we don't know um, what's causing it. And that's the scary thing. So if that, if we can't get a handle on that, we can't work out what's causing it, then we can't stop it. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's a really important example of the combined impacts of local impacts and global impacts. Because, like I said, your this population in New South Wales is obviously going to be really key to like future stocks of turtles along the whole coastline. And if they're being impacted by what we're doing locally, then um, that has uh, a big implication not just to our populations here, but also to the whole coastline of population so um yeah that's that's really interesting that um it's not just exciting that we've got sea turtles down here and we see them but they're actually a really important population and they're going to be really critical to the future of sea turtles along the whole coastline yeah so it's really important that people start getting involved in some of those science citizen science programs and reporting when they're seeing diseased turtles yeah, so national parks have got uh, a program going called Turtle Watch as well in northern New South Wales that is just designed to do that. It's to get data predominantly on nesting sea turtles. Uh, with our project, our citizen science one, we want to complement that and just get get that data there. Like get yeah, this animal nested here and the nest temperature was that, and then yeah, and then hopefully those critters, you know, not only are they male but they'll be healthy and then they you know do their thing. Uh, but it's such a high neonatal mortality rate, you know, like. Um, so uh, more the merrier. Yeah, can you explain that a bit more? What do you mean? It's a high neonatal mortality rate. Yeah, so the little dudes when they hatch, uh, I mean they're four or five centimeters, um, and they've got to they've got to survive out in the ocean for you know ten years or so, uh, and everything wants to eat a four or five <laughs> centimeter you know sea turtle that floats tasty on the snack. <laughs> yeah, so it's about one in a thousand, I think, make it through to adulthood. Uh, so if a, if a female comes in and she lays 100 eggs on average per per clutch, she might lay maybe two or three clutches a season and then there might be three to five years or so between seasons. Now, so she's producing, what's that, say to say on average 250 eggs over five years, 50 eggs a year, and one in a 1,000 make it through to, to adulthood. So it's not good odds. <laughs> No, no. So the more the merrier. Yeah. Know? So losing those teenage ones to disease is a real problem. Yeah, 100%. You hit the nail on the head. So once they get to that age, they are like the one in a thousand, yeah. you know, because most things aren't going to eat. I mean, we get the odd turtle that's been chomped on, um, but they're pretty good at that age. They find their cracks to hide in. Uh, yeah. So so by the time they get to those years, they've survived so many hurdles out there and they're on the cusp of being kind of recruited into that, the breeding stock, you know. So every time we get a, a teenage critter fixed up that's going to die and back out, and we might do 20 or 30 a year, you know, that's um, that's awesome for the population. Nice. So you're finding when you, you're getting them live and bringing them in and looking after them for a while, they're actually, they're bouncing back? 
Yeah, I mean, we've been I've been doing this year now, 10 or 12 years. And when I first started, I was very confident that, you know, we're going to do this treatment and that treatment. And now we don't, we just give them TLC pretty much. So they yeah. come in, they get nice warm water. We rehydrate them if, if needed, monitor the bloods and get them on a good plan of nutrition. Uh, and yeah, then they, they go good. Um, yeah. we've had, we've had plenty kind of spotted again, three, four, five years after, after release. Nice. Uh, so yeah, it's nice. That's fantastic. So yeah, people out there seeing sea turtles washed in, get in contact with national parks, get involved in citizen science and make sure that um, people like you can come and pick them up and, and rejuvenate them and get them back out into the wild. Yeah. And, and we just have it like having a chat with people on the beach around a sea turtle um, is gold. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Duan, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I've learned so much and I'm going to keep more of an eye out for sea turtles as well. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces. 